Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Previously on Reclaimed and Rewritten. In Tulsa, the major industry was the oil industry, although African-Americans were barred from working in it. Black Wall Street was a phenomenal area, not long out of slavery, of extremely successful and extraordinary people that lived there. And based on racism, white supremacy, Jim and Jane Crow laws, it caused them to flourish and build their own community. There were 10,000 Blacks in Tulsa out of a population of 100,000. There were two movie theaters, one sat 1,000, one sat 750, 35 restaurants, 30 grocery stores and meat markets. There were dry cleaners and photography studios. More than a dozen physicians and surgeons had their practice in Tulsa. There were black dentists, there were black lawyers. They didn't want African-American people to have this kind of success. They did not want them to prosper. You made the excellent connection that this started up because of the failed um, lynching of Dick Rowland. They used Dick Rowland as an escape goat. Dick Rowland was a teenager. When Dick entered the elevator, he tripped. He shot his hands out to break his fall. There was a young teenage white girl, and her name was Sarah Page. The media becomes very prominent in a story, and they post to lynch a Negro tonight, 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 tonight. Black vets in Greenwood organize themselves. Many of them go home and put on their old army uniforms, drive downtown to the courthouse where the lynch mob is. An elderly white man tries to wrestle a gun away from a tall black vet. A shot goes off in the massacre. It's important to remember that African-Americans were outnumbered nine to one. Black Tulsans fought back, and they fought back with everything they had. After the massacre happens, Greenwood is destroyed. You know, more than 1,000 African-American homes and businesses were looted and burned to the ground. A wasteland of rubble, of charred trees, uh, you know, melted bed frames. I mean, it's gone. To take a people's church and burn it to the ground. All of those churches were burned. The massacre was national news. It was international news. It made the Times of London. It made the Times of India. The white authorities realized that they had a PR problem. So they tell the world that white Tulsans are ashamed of what happened. They told that to the world, and then the news cycle moved on. I think a lot of people do imagine and think about black towns in Tulsa as historically utopian communities. There's zero question that people were drawn to these communities because they had an appeal. I personally would not quite call that utopia because anywhere we are, it is hard for black people, especially a collective of black people, to be able to achieve that utopia. 
to be able to achieve that perfection in a place. Many of these districts, of course, were destroyed after World War II through redlining, through urban renewal or urban removal, through freeway construction, and also just through desegregation. What we think we know. Black Wall Street. Myth or reality? Teddy boys, white, working class, very much wanted to keep Britain white, didn't understand where all of these black and brown people were suddenly coming from, um, what claims they had to English land. I'm Clark Kent, and in Reclaimed and Rewritten, I'll be exploring the myths and the realities of Tulsa and the 1921 race riots that decimated the thriving black community known as Deep Greenwood. There was, like, the black van that black people knew to, like, look out for or be scared for because you could just be walking down the street by yourself and this black van pulls up next to you. Half a dozen police officers leap out of the back, attack you, beat you up. No arrests, no charges, nothing. And then on their way. The aim of Reclaimed and Rewritten is to find and tell the whole truth of our complicated histories, leaving no stone unturned. Some truths will be difficult to hear, and others will bring great pride and joy. Tensions reached an all-time high. There were protests. There were police officers using batons and assaulting protesters while protesters were hurling bricks. And later that evening, a police officer was actually killed during the conflict. Over the course of the last three episodes, we explored the early years of Deep Greenwood's formation. Scott Ellsworth and Dr. Geraldine Uhlenberg told us the story of Dick Rowland and how the media and law enforcement stoked tensions between the Black and white residents in Tulsa. The result being a race riot whose impact would echo through the halls of history. In this installment of Reclaim the Rewritten, we're heading to the UK with British journalist Paula Akpan to unearth the roots of community building in the UK and to discuss the ways these somewhat smaller hubs were formed as a shield against a systemically racist society. We'll also hear about key riots and uprisings in England that mirror the Tulsa massacre of 1921. A lot of this important history has been pushed to the fringes. Um, Like, we know it exists. We know that they did things. We know that they are important. But um, in terms of what we have access to to remember them, um, it's not as detailed as we would like. So I'm glad that you pointed that out. You know, this series, we, we've been using it to delve into fringe history like Deep Greenwood in the United States. So I definitely wanted to ask you if there were any communities like that that is like comparable and something that we could delve into further to the extent of deep greenwood i would say not that i'm aware of i think that honestly deep greenwood feels like such a unique example and i've actually been trying to think about like why i can't think of any kind of community spaces that i could compare to that and i wonder if it's to do with having roots in that space as well, something that Black people in Britain have not been afforded to that extent. You mentioned the word roots, which is really important to this discussion, if only because our collective history as people and peoples across this planet, especially uh, post-colonization, 
it's not all bad, but it's uh, it could be very painful. Um, it's not neat history either. It's not something that we could sum up very cleanly um, in a sentence or in a paragraph even. So I, I kind of wanted to ask you if you could expand on that only because you are absolutely right in terms of like the demographics in the UK being very different for Black people there versus Black people in the States. So I kind of wanted to ask you about that and how that might, like you said, have affected how communities were or weren't established. For me, the experience of Black people in the UK historically is tied to actual displacement. I think that whether in public record or whether through oral histories or whether through any other method of, you know, historiography, I think that it's really difficult to find constant threads of Black British history. There is a continual denial of, like, our contributions and actual existence within these spaces. And I think that it's actually quite frustrating to try and understand what kind of mechanisms have allowed and created the displacement to this extent when it feels like comparatively with the US, there are real community hubs, real community spaces that have been afforded, you know, decades, centuries to kind of build. I think that perhaps... Part of it is, in a way, being able to trace lineage kind of directly to African nations, Caribbean nations, and perhaps, in a way, some sort of psychological element as well in the that was a real home, that was the home that they had been taken from or that they were working to somehow build towards as well. Also, citizenship for Black people, Black subjects of the British Empire has always been contingent on the goodwill of the empire, obviously. And I think that that means Black people with connection to empire were called to empire at will. And then when it suits empire, rejected or told to leave and to go home. We see that in terms of legislation. We see that with the building of the NHS, which is the national health system in the UK. The Black women, especially Caribbean women, were called from, you know, their homes, from their lands and told to come and build towards the infrastructure of the mother country while a lot of British people were away fighting in the wars. Um, So it was this idea that they could tap in to the subjecthood of Caribbean communities there and same with African communities. But it was always temporary. It was always liminal. When that is the foundation of your relationship to citizenship, then I think it's quite difficult to see this place as home, especially when you're shown time and time again that you're not wanted there. Yeah, again, reflected in legislation, reflected in like the Race Relation Acts, which were actually not put in place to support um, Black and brown people um they were not put in place out of goodwill but actually it was something that they required in order to be accepted within an eu circle so again it's out of convenience and efficiency rather than the right thing to do i think it speaks to 
what it's like being in the belly of the beast. Just looking at my timeline, at all of my um, Black mutuals, you know, when everyone's not involved in some diaspora, (laughs) there is always some discussion about what it's like specifically for Black Brits and Black Americans to literally be, like, right under the thumb of these, like, OG colonial powers. So I think people forget that the ways in which one can organize over there is going to look a little different than in the States. Do you think that also made it difficult for Black Brits to kind of not just do any organizing, but even try to, hell, get businesses going, try to get some semblance of like coherent wealth across different communities in the UK going? Well, I think that feeling of like temporality, it wasn't just felt by Black people in Britain is also felt by the people who believe that they have a right to this land. When you're feeling that as a white person who is feeling like you're being displaced within your own country without actually understanding what your country, what its empire has done, and therefore why subjecthood is expected from these spaces, I think that there was always a hostility, there was always a belief that you are a usurper. There was like a lack of understanding of the history of British colonialism and like the depths of it. So I think that between maybe like the 70s, let's say 70s to 90s, I think that you are encountering a hostile state, a state that is not actually set up in a way to afford you any rights or freedoms. And when you are campaigning or protesting for those rights and freedoms, it's seen as a lack of gratitude that you were taken in, despite the fact that we know that Black people in Britain, you know, they built the very systems that we utilise today. Caribbean women, they built the NHS. The NHS wouldn't have functioned without Black, African and Caribbean women. And how did that play out in the day-to-day, like specifically day-to-day interactions? Ultimately, it was actually really about not dying and not dying in those many different ways, whether being harassed with sus law, whether being attacked by white skinheads, so like the white public, whether it was through medical racism, medical anti-blackness, and, you know, as a black woman being tested with contraceptive injections um, without your knowledge or forcibly sterilised. It was also about a lot of African and Caribbean children they um, would be sent to schools for children with like special educational needs even when they did not themselves have special educational needs so then you had a lot of parents literally just fighting to have their children educated you had black single women with children trying to find ways to have their children looked after while they had to go and work. So I think in so many ways, it was a mission of survival. And again, without that lack of roots, I think maybe it's difficult to see yourself as part of a community, see yourself as part of a community where you can actually build yourself a business, build yourself a hub, because the rejection was so intense. So we're talking about political hostility as well then. 
Absolutely. So there was Enoch Powell, who was a Tory MP, Conservatives, uh, for people who are not British. And he had this speech called Rivers of Blood, or coined as Rivers of Blood, which really spoke to immigration. He alluded to claims that there were white children who were the only white kids in their classes and how it was being overrun by black and brown students. When you have leaders and MPs and figures of state really denouncing your existence, I think that it was truly just about trying to survive and, if possible, send money back if you had any at the end of all of that strife. You mentioned something I wanted to elaborate on, which was the phrase sending money back. Because I believe I know what you're referring to, but I wanted to ask if you can unpack that for our audience. So when I'm talking about sending money back, I'm talking very like loosely about um, how Britain as a whole was seen as affluent, somewhere that you perhaps wouldn't see as a long-term place to set up roots, potentially, but more so as like a stopgap for earning good money, getting your qualification, perhaps getting your nurse's qualification, because in the UK, it would have more weight and, you know, apparently mean more than if in the Caribbean or, you know, in Ghana, Nigeria, etc. And whilst trying to build or see what the mother country had in store for you, what was promised by the empire when they were beseeching African and Caribbean people to come over, then wanting to send like a slice of that home to those who couldn't come with you. Often I have heard and come across so many stories of, you know, mothers leaving behind their kids and then sending for them a few years later when they have found a home, they have established some sort of base, some sort of network where they've maybe reconnected with their partner or whoever it is that it was on the other side who maybe went before them. There was always some sort of link to home and there was always maybe a dependent that you had to support even while you weren't on the continent. That for me, I feel like is significant because it sounds like a lot of uh, Black Brits tried to maintain basically communities that they had formed back home, like you said. So I think that's very interesting that in the absence of, like you said, the particular hubs that you could have found in the U.S., there was still something going internationally. So I feel like that speaks to um, global solidarity. So thank you so much for bringing that up. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I really want to go back to the role that white violence in particular, the obstacle that it becomes in global efforts for um, Black people to organize, because we saw it real heavy in Tulsa. We saw what happened when they get mad and they decide they don't want us to organize anymore. So I want to ask you about that. I know the UK has had its fair share of race riots over the decades. Can you speak to some of the more notable examples that mirror the Tulsa race riots as they're sometimes referred to in the States? I think that when we're talking about civil uprising for Black people in Britain, it falls within two main categories, at least for me, which is state violence and public violence. So I have three main examples that come to mind. Broadwater Farm, which was firmly, you know, an example of state violence, Notting Hill riots, which is very much public-facing and between Black communities and white communities, and then the New Cross fires, which straddles both public and state. So I'll start us off with Broadwater Farm, a really huge, critical, pivotal event in Black British history. I think that really needs to be prefaced by um, sus law and what that means. So in 1824, there was a act called like the Vagrancy Act, which essentially one of the clauses said that people could be arrested on suspicion of doing some sort of criminal activity. Obviously, when that is not caveated, there are obviously going to be officers, people who form the state's mechanisms who will do the utmost and it becomes part of that institution. When we're talking about the police, right... (laughs) Police were originally slave catchers, so they were never a system or institute that was going to be for or protecting black life. They were there to protect property and protect the interests of white people, whiteness and all its many forms. So we're in 1985 and 1980s, it was rife with people being stopped, black people, young black people being stopped and harassed continually. So I spoke to one person that the same police car stopped him three times during the day while he was just like riding his bike. He was nine. And... There was like the black van that black people knew to like look out for or be scared for because you could just be walking down the street by yourself and then this black van pulls up next to you, half a dozen police officers leap out of the back, attack you, beat you up, no arrests, no charges, nothing, and then on their way. So like this was like very much ingrained in like 
what black people had to look out for, what they had to be constantly aware of. And it was like a pressure cooker that was just, you know, it was bubbling away. In the States, there are countless examples of the police stopping and brutalizing and even killing black people. Um, One example that like sticks with me to this day is Tamir Rice, who was literally only like 12 years old when a police officer stopped and shot and killed him for playing with a toy gun, which is crazy considering this country's gun problem. But anyways, so you were talking about Broadwater Farm. So these particular riots took place in October 1985. And while Broadwater Farm is primarily hinged to the death of Cynthia Jarrett, who was, you know, a Jamaican older woman who had joined her husband in England in 1958, where they raised children, where they raised grandchildren. While it is primarily about her, it's also about another Black woman called Cherry Gross, who had been shot in her home in Brixton. So both of these women were assaulted or caught off guard in their homes when raided by police who were looking for their relatives. And I think that against a backdrop of sus law, of being perpetually stopped and harassed, a long just standing history of being on edge purely because of, you know, because of your own blackness, then to kind of see these assaults take place against two black women within their homes and especially because they were um community fixtures you know Cynthia was loved by everyone in the neighborhood she often looked after the children of neighbors and friends so thinking about the kind of space that they occupied within not only just their families but within their wider communities this was an assault to those communities, that these women couldn't even be safe there. And there is so much there as well when we're thinking about how revered older Black women tend to be within our communities, especially, I would say, for diasporian communities as well. They are that kind of connection to whatever home looks like for you. During the police raid on Cynthia Jarrett's home in Tottenham, she collapsed, had a massive heart attack and died that day. Cynthia's death took place a week after Cherry Gross was shot in Brixton and paralysed also during a police search. And she died in 2011 due to complications directly related to the shooting. And there was a lot of confusion, I would say, amongst the community as well, because when police officers are involved in house raids and someone dies, it doesn't inspire any kind of belief that it could have been any kind of nefarious action. Cynthia's daughter, Patricia, actually told the court at an inquest that her mum had been pushed over by one of the detectives on the scene. There was so much confusion and frustration about like what had actually happened and what had led to her death that night. So then the next day, there were protests outside of the Tottenham police station where tensions just 
reach an all-time high. There were police officers using batons and assaulting protesters while protesters were hurling bricks and, you know, petrol bombs, whatever they could get their hands on. And later that evening, a police officer was actually killed during the conflict, um, which led to the harassment and arresting of about 400 people who lived in Broadwater Farm Estate or around or in the nearby area. And that continued for several months. And it was that kind of those interrogation, intimidation style tactics that were being used because the way the police saw it was that one of their own had been their life had been taken without understanding or trying to engage with what could set off a community and multiple communities off like this. And I think that Broadwater Farm also really demonstrated how locked in all of these communities were. It wasn't just isolated incidents taking place in silo. Especially in 1985, there were a number of riots, there were a number of uprisings, not just in London, across the country. We're talking Liverpool, we're talking Manchester. So it really demonstrated that when one kind of community had been pushed to breaking point. It encouraged other spaces, other organisers to look to their own communities and think about how they could also resist and rise up as well. Paula, I am so glad that you mentioned the Vagrancy Act of 1824 in the UK because it just reminds me how vagrancy or the act of vagrancy or any laws pertaining to it have been historically used, even in the States, as a precursor to enacting state violence upon Black people. And it's funny because vagrancy itself as a concept is so wild to me because, like, its base definition is, you know, synonymous with homelessness, but with, like, a special focus on the fact that one has no income or employment, calling you basically glorified bum. So it's, like, essentially any law that is criminalizing vagrancy, it's specifically accusing you of doing absolutely nothing. As in, you're not being a productive member of the proletariat, as in you're not properly working yourself to death under capitalism. One of the most important events that led up to the Tulsa massacre in which the city used vagrancy laws to persecute the international workers of the world who were an interracial labor union. They used those laws to drive them out of the city. And it's funny to me because these union workers were working, they were organizing, but the city did not care because to them, if they had time to organize, they weren't working enough. So white supremacists in Tulsa, they were absolutely pissed um, about A, them being able to have the time to organize, and B, being an interracial anything, you know, like, how dare you treat these Black people like humans? And it, it also didn't help that the group's ideology heavily leaned towards socialism. I mean, they didn't get repealed until 1981. So these laws were in place and enforceable from 1824 until 1981. And they are foundational for a lot of the legislation that I would say that we have today that is quite anti-Black when we're talking about how stop and search works in the UK, for example, that is very much rooted in a concept where you could analyse 
how likely someone is to commit some sort of offence or some sort of crime. And it's indivisible from whiteness as the norm, as the basis, alignments between blackness and deviance. It still very much affects us today. It cultivated, especially like Sustor, cultivated a space of fear, helplessness, definitely. I would argue that it compounded feelings of displacement. You are conditioned to look to the law as your aid, as your support. But the law was out here demonising you because you live in an estate, because you fit all of the various characteristics of an undesirable within the UK, that therefore you could be harassed in this manner. There was also like an awareness on the part of any police officer who was using sus law to harass, but they could get away with it. And that no one cared enough about black communities, black well-being to pull them up on anything. It wasn't within their interest, it wasn't within their remit, it wasn't on their radar. All they were concerned with was beating down this community that they had, they had no idea why they were here, you know, they had no understanding of deep or material understanding of British Empire and what that had meant in terms of subjected for African and Caribbean people who were now living in the UK. So these people had just sprung up out of nowhere, taking jobs, learns, all of that kind of rhetoric, and were causing problems, were asking for more than they needed. You know, who are you to ask for childcare or for your children to be better educated? Aren't you just lucky and grateful that you're getting that anyway? So there were a lot of people who, and I would say a lot of police officers, who leaned completely into what SUS law represented and allowed them some sort of conduit, some sort of space for which they could vent those frustrations towards black communities. Paula goes on to describe the events of the Notting Hill riots. So the second example that comes to mind is the Notting Hill riots, which took place around 1958. This one for me is quite firmly fixed in public violence, public aggression towards black communities. When we're thinking about Afro-Caribbean migration to England, to the UK... This obviously very much increased after the Second World War, after Britain beckoned black people to come and support the mother country. So you're finding like really densely populated areas of African and Caribbean communities. One such that comes to mind immediately is obviously Brixton. And Notting Hill was also another space that was really, really familiar in terms of Caribbean and African community building. But by the end of the 1950s, 
there were starting to emerge these kind of like subcultures with one such subculture being teddy boys who tended to be white, working class, you know, had a particular fashion, which is annoyingly very good. But they were starting to emerge as a group that was unhappy and hostile towards black families, particularly in the Notting Hill area. And you had other far-right groups that started springing up, such as, you know, White Defence League, etc., who very much wanted to keep Britain white, didn't understand where all of these black and brown people were suddenly coming from, um, what claims they had to English land and As a result, we started to see an increase in violence towards black people, black families, especially in this area. You're seeing like a number of assaults that young, white, English youths, for lack of a better term, um, would be committing against, you know, their shops, businesses, things like that. The main events of what we configure as the Notting Hill riot today um, actually started as a result of a lover's tiff, could you imagine? So Madge Britt Morrison was a white Swedish woman who was married to a Jamaican man called Raymond Morrison and they were both witnessed arguing outside of Latimer Road Station on the 29th of August 1958. And with Madge being a white woman and, you know, being verbally assaulted, presumably, is what, you know, white people would have considered was happening. Verbally assaulted by this black man, possibly with an accent, you know, all of the signifiers of something is wrong, something, her white femininity, her, she's vulnerable right now. So a number of white people tried to intervene into the argument and then Raymond's friends as well got involved. So then there was like a fight that broke out in between intervening people. And I think it's really fascinating because I think this is something that you've actually spoken to, Clarkisha, in terms of the catalyst for Tulsa as well. Like there was something to be said about how white people interpreted white women liaising or speaking with the enemy, them not being able to understand any kind of romantic formation between white women and black men. I think it just conjures up so many feelings of confusion. You know, why would you go after this specimen that, you know, scientifically we have ranked at the bottom of the bottom when I am from Mount Caucasus or whatever it is. So like this kind of confusion, anger, frustration, um, she was verbally and physically assaulted the next day. Reportedly, she had milk bottles thrown at her. She was called like a black man's trollop, all of that kind of rhetoric. And then later that night, a mob of about 300, 400 white people were seen in the area just indiscriminately attacking homes of Caribbean residents. And this continued every night until the 5th of September. So that's like, we're talking a good solid week of night on night disturbances. It's interesting that whenever there's a tragedy where many black people are violently assaulted or killed, you can be assured 
that a white woman is near or at the center of the story. White men love using them as a battle cry in that you've touched my property, here's the retribution kind of way. Paula speaks about the tragic New Cross fire of 1981. In 1981, there was a fire that broke out at the end of like a party in New Cross, which is in South London. It was a birthday party for two young girls who were like, you know, middling aged teenagers. And at the fire itself, it claimed the lives of 13 young black people who were all aged between 14 and 22. And two years later, also the life of um, a survivor as well who died by suicide. So the police initially believed that the party had been firebombed, but then there was a police report that was released in like 2011 that insisted that the fire had to have come from inside the house. A couple months after, on the 2nd of March, we saw the first Black People's Day of Action, where Black people, about like 20,000 people, gathered to protest the fact that nothing had actually been done to further interrogate and investigate what had happened to these people's children. People had placards or signs that said, you know, 13 dead, nothing said. I think New Cross Fire was really painful for a lot of people, obviously including, like, those who survived, those who lost people. But I think also, like, the blatant disregard for Black life. And I hate, like, kind of making these comparisons because they don't always feel useful. But it's knowing that had 13 young white people aged between 14 and 22 died in a blaze then what the response to that would have been would have obviously been so different to this. And allegedly, a jailed murderer um, has confessed to his part in starting the fire. So the police received his confessions between 1991 and 1993. And this only, as far as I'm aware, was publicised by the press this year. So he's since confessed to his part in starting the fire and then, like, retracted it at some point. But it was this idea that Black people who were saying that, you know, something has happened. Of course, there wasn't just, like, a fire. People asking for more answers were kind of brushed off as just, like, why can't you just leave it at the fire? Why are you making so much noise about this? The absolute violence of this state, it's incomparable because you couldn't just give us some answers. You can at least say, like, someone has actually admitted to taking part in this, but you allow us to continue believing that, you know, we're mad, we're the mad ones. I think that was another example of, like, what we've been talking about in terms of just, like, silencing, trying to omit things from history, trying to erase things from history, sitting on things for decades when it could have offered our communities some sort of solace. In the next installment of Reclaimed and Rewritten, I'll be speaking with Wayne Haynes, who was the DJ at the house party in New Cross on that tragic evening in 1981. I'll also be digging deeper into the many ways various laws and financial systems have been weaponized to control Black communities in both the U.S. and the U.K., We're putting together an extra special episode where we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on the story so far? 
Was there anything that surprised you? What does this mean for the Black community globally? Send us a voice note or video via email to podcasts at gal-dem.com and we will not only feature your contribution, but we will discuss them in one of the episodes. Reclaimed and Rewritten is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can follow Galdem on all social media platforms at Galdemzine. G-A-L-D-E-M-Z-I-N-E. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.